Jennings, and this is a Kiwi original. Today on the show, I'm joined by two people from Backcountry Cuisine, Tony Caldwell, who is the marketing manager, and John McGrath, the general manager. We actually flew down to Invercargill for this chat, so we were all in the same room, which was a great feeling. Now, Tony's going to cover off why Backcountry Cuisine has been a staple of tramping for almost two decades now and what's made them one of the biggest producers of freeze-dried meals in Australasia. While the borders are closed, Kiwis are turning to them for a lighter snack and meal while out and about in the great walks of Aotearoa. And John McGrath covers off some of the history of the company that you may not be aware of and the part he's played in that, particularly in growing volume through capacity planning that has helped the company cope with demand. This is a great chat and a really inspiring story from Invercargill. Have a listen. Enjoy the chat. Backcountry cuisine. We're in the southernmost city in New Zealand, which some would say would be the headquarters of the backcountry. What's your backstory into backcountry cuisine? Okay. um, Well, in a previous life, I had 27 years working at Alliance Group, and Alliance Group were one of the um, probably the leaders of freeze dry, development of freeze-dry food in New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, they, they probably, mid-60s, started freeze-drying food out there. And in 1995, um, they were probably doing a lot for the armies and that type of thing, really more than retail. Um, they elected as part of selling off non-core business, sold... Uh, the Alliance freeze-dried business, including a couple of dryers, to um, a guy called Arthur Ballantyne, who was the plant manager at Lawnville, their biggest plant at that time. Uh, but he was also a scientist, Arthur, and had a particular fondness for the freeze-dried. Uh, so in conjunction with um, uh, Southland Community Trust, they purchased that business from Alliance and set up where we are now in, in Otapuni Avenue, set the new factory up. And that's where the um, Backcountry Cuisine uh, branding came from following when Arthur purchased the business. And Tony, we've just had a look through Backcountry Cuisine. We've had a look at some of the, <coughs> the manufacturing side of it. Uh, you started at the business, what, two or three years ago? Uh, yeah, three, three and a bit years ago now, Ryan. Yes, yeah. Um, so my wife's a Southlander. Um, I grew up in Tauranga and uh, we wanted to come back to New Zealand and live somewhere near family and uh, Southland ended up winning. And uh, I used to work for SBS Bank and um, I worked there for 13 years in marketing and project management roles. And uh, I, I saw a, a job come up and John and I sort of knew each other from the from the hallways there. Um, the Alliance and SBS Bank are co-located and uh, there was a job for a marketing manager so I was really keen on that job having used our products myself for about 15 odd years prior to that and knowing it was a great product and John very kindly gave me the job and uh, yeah it's it's been excellent. So you've gone from banking with SBS, which uh, I must say has, must have done some good marketing because I've got a SBS card in my wallet right now. Oh, fantastic. Um, so trading in the, the black and orange of SBS for backcountry cuisine, what's it like dealing with a, you know, a live product that's not a, a digital product, it's, it's real ingredients? Yeah, it's, it's, 
fantastic. It's really good to be able to deal with a physical product and a much smaller business. It's so much easier to uh, create change in that business and in, in the business we're now and implement it. And having a physical product that um, you can see being manufactured and taste and understand the processes that flows through is just is fantastic. It's so much easier. Yep. I also came from a bit of a finance background as well prior to um, probably four and a half years with Bank Country Cuisine coming from Alliance Group. Um, so it has been a change for me too, but it was, it's was it been great, really enjoyable. And I think I took probably a year to employ um, Tony at the time because we had that much demand for the product. I think the last thing I wanted to do was employ a marketing manager and actually have more demand and disappoint more people. So we really, I really concentrated at the front end of the business for a start to increase production uh, that we can get out of the factory and it's in its current state. And then uh, it was great getting someone like Tony on board because Tony had so much passion for the product, so much experience with the outdoors. It was, you know, it's been a, been a great choice. And that's a, that's a you know, challenging balancing act for any business. And you know, we refer to the production as the front end. I'd probably say that the marketing and sales is the front end, but you're the, the GM. So this was the decision you had to make to get the production working as a well machine first, right? Yeah, no, that was definitely the, 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 I could see we had more demand than we're actually meeting at the time and disappointing customers. So it was a matter of just going right back to start, having a look at how we could increase in the current factory. We've got more production out of there and, um, and then look to grow the business again. And then you came into the business, Tony. What did you see and what did you want to, to do back three years ago? When you yeah, joined? so simplistically, I saw a fantastic product inside the packet that was working really hard for us. What didn't match up with it was the packaging sitting around it, wasn't doing, doing as good a job as the meal inside. And um, a brand that hadn't really had a refresh probably for the best part of 10 years. The packaging was very much looked of the 90s. And uh, so, yeah, I really felt that um, we had a fantastic product and what needed a bit of love was our brand and our look in the marketplace. And so that's, uh, that's what I focused on to start with, was making the outside of the packet look as good as the meal tasted inside. So there's a lot of challenges with that, particularly with a, a long uh, shelf-stable product to actually remove the brand, the old brand, out of the market and get the new one in. But I guess the first part is, well, what, what do you need to put on the package and what do you need to think about when you're doing packaging for something like a freeze-dried product that's going into who knows where, right? It could be hunters, fishermen. Yep. Um, all sorts of places. That's that's right. So um, I guess there, there were a couple of similarities between banking and, and food. They're both highly regulated industries in terms of how they operate. And I was also lucky that um, I'd been part of a significant brand refresh just at SBS Bank before I then started with Backcountry Cuisine. Um, but it was a big learning curve to learn all of the um, requirements on the packaging that relate to the Australian New Zealand foods um, safety standards. So yeah, lots of learnings about um, ingredients um, and the declaration of nutrition and also even the weights and everything else. So yeah, there's a lot of regulatory information that we have to present on that packaging. And then on top of that, there's lots of things that we want to do to make it easy for the end user, like putting dots on the lines where you tear the 
particular part of the packet to be able to put water in. Um, we added an on-pack measuring um, tool on the outside, so if you forget to take your cup or you want to travel really light without a cup, you can actually get the right amount of water in. Um, by using the on-pack measuring system because one of the things I learned very early on using the meals myself is you can always add a little bit more water at the end but once you put too much water in you've got soup no matter what you do to it so yeah lo lots of things so um, a challenge to keep it nice and simple for the size of business we are to be able to produce that labeling but also having to meet the regulatory requirements and then making it easy for users to actually use those products in the outdoors which is what they're designed for and i think the other key thing with that tony was <coughs> we, we had that distinctive green with the orange that everyone recognized yeah about, so we wanted to try and keep that we didn't want to lose we didn't want to lose it yeah because yeah. it was very well um, so the, very well known that brand. So. Yeah, so the the colour elements of the brand and those key features we we work very hard on keeping, and also um, within our range we have meals, breakfasts, desserts, and also compliments, and they also had a colour scheme as well. So we transferred that colour scheme across through the modernisation, so people still understood. You know, if I'm buying a meal, it's the dark green packet. So even though the green, you know, the look and feel changed. The green packet was still the meal, the light green is the dessert or breakfast, and the blue one was the compliment. So worked very hard at keeping those distinctive elements. Yeah. And you currently uh, don't sell direct. These, these are all um, products that are available through resellers, retailers, distributors, uh, internationally. What's been their feedback on the, the change in brand? Yeah. I think we're a little bit unique these days in the fact that we don't sell direct um, and, and compete with our stockists and our stockists really value that and it enables us to focus on what we're good at which is making the meals and getting them to them. And their growth has been good too so yeah. the company's been growing along with their retailers. Um, the volumes have been selling to them. It's been mm. good growth as it's well. It's been very good. So we wanted to take along our customers who, who are our resellers and also our end users on that journey in terms of refreshing the brand. So we touched base with them along that journey and ultimately the feedback that we've got back has been fantastic. Everybody's really enjoyed seeing the brand being modernised and having some love and attention put into it. So the feedback's been overwhelmingly good. I certainly liked it when I saw it for the first time. Obviously, with the, the New Zealand made logo was on the previous packaging as that classic red and blue, and you had upgraded it to the new triangle device with the white logo you know, recessed on the black. And it just it pops out in that bottom right hand corner. It makes me want to turn the package over. Um, is, there, is, this, is there a reason why that made the front rather than just having it on the back of the package? Yeah, the, yeah. ultimately um, I thought it sat really well with um, our brand and our brand positioning and being a, a, you know, a New Zealand made brand. I thought it supported that really well. And also, um, Ryan, when we were talking about it earlier, your comment about it almost being like a, a device to encourage you to turn the pack over. Yeah, I, I think it sits really well there. Now, John, we talked about the marketing and Tony's come into the business and he's got these new ideas to upgrade the brand, maybe introduce new products. Was there ever a moment where you're thinking, okay, I've just sorted out production and all of these new things are going to add more complexity in. Do we really want to do them? 
I, I guess always those things go through your mind and if it ain't, it ain't broke, don't fix it. But no, I, it did need, I could see myself, it did need uh, a modernisation of the brand. Um, Tony had some great ideas for that. Sanos, as I said, he was, um, he came with some really good ideas that we pushed through. And yeah, no, it hasn't been, I don't, didn't see that being an issue. I saw that as a real positive. So let's talk about some of the, the flavours and the actual, um, the, the meals themselves, because it's more than just the dinner you have at the end of the trek, isn't it? You've also got the smoothies available, there's desserts. Um, tell me about some of them maybe that you've been involved with, uh, Tony, and maybe then John about some of the, the ones you like and have seen through the business for its, for its entire time. Yeah, as, as a business, as a medium-sized business, um, we do have a very large product range. We've got over 100 SKUs in our range, so we make our meals in a couple of different sizes, and as we talked about earlier, we've got desserts and breakfasts and smoothies. And what we try and do is not just cater to um, giving somebody in the outdoors just enough food to, you know, to survive. We really want to... Um, have people enjoy their time in the outdoors and have a great dining experience. So to do that, we make things like smoothies. So if you're in between meals or you've just walked up a really big hill but it's not quite time for lunch, smoothies are a great product for bringing, getting your energy levels back up or, and um, giving you a, a quick boost. So we've got the smoothie range and um, when I came into the business we uh, identified that it would be, you know, people love chocolate and coffee so an iced mocha just made sense to me. So we added an iced mocha into the range. And then desserts. Uh, desserts are a really interesting thing. Um, although you technically may not need a dessert at the end of uh, your hike or when you've got to a hut, they are wonderful things to um, use as a reward for, for getting to a destination and um, really in, you know, sitting down and enjoying your meal at the end of the day. And they're also uh, quite communal. People enjoy sharing desserts. And if you've got children, especially small children, who you're trying to bribe to go that little bit further uh, in the back country, they work beautifully. Um, you know, there's, there's been plenty of desserts had for breakfast and lunch as well as uh, after dinner, yeah. I, I certainly found that with uh, doing the, the Kepler track and we had the, it was a creamy cabanara for the dinner and then I thought, why not just tuck into this, um, it was a, a chocolate brownie and I thought, how are you going to put a chocolate brownie into like a pack? And But it works, you put hot water in and it was, it was delicious. And I thought to myself, that's actually the reason why you take those two packs is one's your nutritional need and one's just a bit of a, a reward and, and enjoyment. And the, the people around in that Kepler track hut on the second night were like, hey, where did you get that? Because they also had backcountry cuisine, but I think you must have just brought one of these out because they didn't see those desserts on offer. No, we did. The chocolate brownie was, was just new to the market. Um, when, when you had your one. And uh, the chocolate brownie is our version of a chocolate self-sourcing pudding. So um, yeah, and it, it's it's really good. If, if you like chocolate and you like self-sourcing, you know, chocolate self-sourcing pudding, it's the dessert for you, yeah. Now, John, what are some of the classics of the range that have stood the test of time, even though maybe you thought that, that this wouldn't be one that would have carried through over the, the period of time. Well, in my four and a half years, it, the top seller every year has been the roast lamb. And uh, 
and there's, there's a few others that are changing now. We, the recipe for the cooked breakfast was changed. It used to have beans and, uh, and they don't, and that got changed. And that's become really popular with the, um, the hash brown, tomato, egg, and smoky beef flavor. And that's really, its growth has been uh, really pleasing. Um, all 100% ingredients are freeze dried that's in it. So it's actually one of our most complicated meals to make, but uh, yeah, no, we're very pleased to see the growth of that, so. And for an ingredient like the hash brown, where does that come from and in what manufacturing processes are you applying to it to take it from what maybe the New Zealand made audience thinks a hash brown looks like into the toaster and you eat one? Um, how do you have to adapt that when it's going into a, a package? Well, Ryan, it's exactly like the hash brown you'd buy from the supermarket. In that particular case, we have a McCain's hash brown, New Zealand hash brown, and we freeze dry it, but once again, it takes all the moisture out of it, and then we mill it up, and so it's a powder, and when you put the water back in, it rehydrates again. So, yeah, that's exactly the same hash brown as you'd eat if you could so bake it yourself in the oven. Same taste, same nutritional value. You're just taking out the heavy part, the water, that then when you're out in the bush, you can add the water back in. Yep. New Zealand-made Kiwi trademark is relied upon by over 1,500 New Zealand businesses to gain a market origin advantage in the markets they operate, both domestically and internationally. Check to see if the good service or software that you make is eligible at buynz.org.nz. Where are some of the places you've seen your product turn up? Uh, that's a, a great question. Um, it, it never ceases to amaze us where our products turn up and some of the adventures that people take them on. So we have had um, pictures of meals sent in being eaten by end users from um, places like uh, as diverse as uh, Korea, South Korea. Um, people climbing in the Himalayas, uh, some of the uh, very um, small countries like Kazakhstan and other places where there are mountains to climb, uh, people putting them in kayaks and kayaking around uh, Tasmania or New Zealand. Yeah, uh, you, if, if you can think of an adventure, um, our meals have, have been on it probably. Yeah, yeah very diverse range. What was the World um, response that went to Fiji? In America, there used to be a very popular adventure racing series, um, and it got a reboot a couple of years ago. Um, I've just the name escapes me at the moment, but uh, essentially they were the reboot was being held in Fiji. So they got all these adventure racing teams from around the world. It was being filmed for Prime Amazon, and they found they couldn't get uh, freeze dried meals from North America there. So they contacted us and said. Um, would you be able to send us an awful lot of freeze-dried meals? And we said, well, I, th I think we can do that for you, yeah. And uh, so we supplied the meals for all of the film crews and the adventure racing teams um, for the for the reboot of the, uh, the series. Is it something race? I can't remember what it's called now, but it was, yeah. It was a, so the so they all the competitors used it. Yes, yeah. ev everyone ate backcountry cuisine, yeah, for the, for the week uh, of the race. Mm. Now, a question I wanted to ask you about is um, one that 
I've asked a, a lot of business owners and marketing managers and, and GMs through the Akiri original um, is because of 2020 being a very unusual year. It's affected businesses in different ways. Um, what has been the, the good and bad that's come out of um, the, the lockdowns and the, the pandemic and the changes in supply chains uh, and consumer behavior with backcountry cuisine? Because you would, uh, I would imagine, supply a lot of tourist trade um, here and, and overseas. I guess if I just started back to when COVID first came out, or first in New Zealand where it came, and there was all that uncertainty about where supermarkets going to be open and how people. So there was quite a demand for long life emergency food uh, in that initial March. That, yeah? Yes, March. March. Yep. And then, of course, uh, with the lockdown, all our stores were closed pretty much except for the supermarkets. Um, so we, it was very low demand through that. But prior to that, there'd been a really, a real demand, huge demand for the product prior to. Um, Prior to the lockdown. lockdown, So people thinking, I'm not going to be able to feed myself. I'm going to use this as basically emergency food. Yes. It's a really interesting question, Ryan. There's been so many positives and negatives and and different observations. Um, What we've noticed, uh, one difference we've noticed between Australians and New Zealanders is Aussies tend to actually be prepared to get emergency prepared on their own without as much, um, without, with a bit of marketing attention, I guess is what I would say. Whereas New Zealanders, I think we take things fairly easily and our, um, and our attitude means that it took a pandemic for most of us to actually make an emergency kit at home. So that's what John was referring to. So yeah, at the start we were very busy. Um, it became quite a stressful time thinking how we were going to operate through those lockdowns um, being classed as an essential service. But we worked our way through that. We did a lot of policy work. Um, and the team became, I think, became a lot, had a really good bond and a bit stronger because we were having to work together and trust each other so much by coming to work every day during lockdown. Um, so, so we, that, had the, we had the two bubbles, basically, your home bubble and work bubble. And the work so bubble. you've got 20 or so employees working through lockdown together and you're, when you say trust, you're really trusting them to keep their bubble at, at home, home yes. separate from everyone else and making sure that your work bubble can continue to feed New Zealanders. Yeah. And uh, so, so that was... Um, on the production side, that was some of the interesting stuff that happened there. And then as we came out of lockdown, we, um, w- the end of our financial year, um, we're a, um, one April to 31 March financial year. So right in those lockdowns, we stopped and had to reforecast what we thought our sales were going to be. And it's fair to say that um, we took a fairly negative view because of what was happening at the time. And we pulled back our marketing budget and other expenses that we felt weren't necessary to align with that um, reduced sales forecast. And then as New Zealand started to come out of the lockdown, um, it was really unknown what would happen. And we've been pleasantly surprised at how well sales have gone uh, since we've come out of lockdown. And 
we're doing much better than forecast, but now we're in our peak season, it's quite interesting to see the difference not having the international tourists in the market makes. It's been great that many more New Zealanders are getting out and enjoying the New Zealand backcountry and reconnecting with it, and that's helping our sales. But what we notice without the international tourists in the market is our demand is much lumpier, so we will um, have a, a week or so of being quite quiet, and then, and then we'll go back to being full on, flat out, which is the level we would normally operate at through this part of the season. So having those international tourists in the market seems to make it a lot smoother. And we think there's um, some really good reasons for that. New Zealanders, you know, we're, we're all working, so we are planning our holidays around school holidays, when we can get leave, long weekends, whereas the international tourists, that's not an issue. You know, those, those, those timings aren't an issue. So they can travel and enjoy our backcountry um, through that peak season whenever they like. We also think that what's happening with their buying is the international tourists um, don't generally bring their food with them into New Zealand because they have to declare it when they come through borders, so that creates issues. It's extra space in their luggage, which is another complication. And um, and because New Zealand is such a well-known tourist destination, they know that they can get food here. And so actually our brand awareness with those international tourists is quite high through social media, which is fantastic for us. So when they get here, they get to their destination, let's say it's Queenstown, they hop off the plane, they're then um, going into our stockist, getting their meals, spending maybe a night or two in Queenstown and then hitting the track. Um, so it's quite immediate, the purchase and then use of the product. Whereas with New Zealanders, because we're planning so far ahead in advance, um, we like to take our meals with us. We like to buy them at home where we live. So we have seen, and the data is starting to show, that we're having a lot more sales um, in the North Island. And that makes sense because that's the bulk of New Zealand's population. And, and now Auckland is New Zealand's biggest domestic, you know, it was, always was New Zealand's biggest domestic tourism market and they are enjoying the backcountry and so we're selling a lot more meals there. So it's very, very interesting. Yeah, the other thing is Australia, the demand uh, we're getting from Australia has really increased and I think that's a lot with all the states being locked down in their own states is um, a lot more Australians are going out, getting in their camper vans, getting in their um, getting in their caravans, etc., and just travelling within the state. So we've seen some big growth in Australia. Uh, our production manager, Ben, was talking to his brother who lives at Perth and was telling us last week that you can't buy a caravan or camper van in Perth. They've all sold. Everyone is travelling within their, as say, within their state, out for weekends, etc. And uh, yeah, we've seen a big demand there in Australia from that. Mm. So it's quite interesting, the COVID pandemic. It's, uh, yeah, it hasn't. It's been good for our demand. And your your business has has you know, relied on that domestic push of tourism and adventuring and seeing our own backyard to make up for that difference of not having the international tourists. Yep. And for for those that that aren't jumping off the plane in Queenstown, your products actually available at quite a lot of different places, isn't it? I was looking on your website. There's Kathmandu. There's Rebel Sports, there's hunting and fishing, saw Gun Cities on there, um, Torpedo 7. Yep, Macpac, yep. How many different retail outlets are, are spread across New Zealand where your, your products are? Yeah, so in terms of our storefronts in New Zealand, I think we're up to roughly around 470 uh, for New Zealand. And we have about 600 odd in Australia as well. 
So, yeah, for our, for our two biggest markets, being Australia and New Zealand, um, we're talking yeah, around a 1,000, just over a 1,000 storefronts. So, um, yeah, we're pretty happy with how that uh, distribution is, is growing. Yeah. Now, we're based in Invercargill for this interview today. Uh, for some of the NZ Made fans that maybe have never been down this far south, because this is the, you know, the largest city and the most southern um, largest city in, in New Zealand before you hit Bluff and then the Stewart Island. Uh, what's it like working here, uh, running a company here, uh, having a team that, that's based in Invercargill? Oh, I think it's great. In fact, um, you know, one. <coughs> Yeah, people are surprised because you say Tony's just elaborate on how many supplies they, they, they still find it hard to believe that we manufacture everything down in Invercargill. But we are close to a lot of sources of, of our supply for ingredients. Um, we've also got a great, really loyal and uh, um, stable workforce down here, which is another attraction, I guess. Uh, probably the cost of living down here is a bit lower, cost of rentals, etc. So it's it's a good city to um, run a business out of, to grow a business, even though you've got the distribution cost to send it uh, around New Zealand or to Australia or around the world, but yeah, it's working. Because it does seem like a long way away from the market, but actually what you just said there is it's very close to where your ingredient supply comes from, and it gives you that benefit of stability of, of team. Yep, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's um, it's a it's a great place uh, to work as well. You know, if um, in, in terms of a place to raise children, I don't think you could ask for a better place. It's big enough to give you all the, you know, access to all the um, mod cons and and shopping and everything else that you need. But it's small enough that it's still got that real community feel and. Um, yeah, you know, the commute to work, I, I live um, out in the country and it's still only a 20 minute commute to work and so it, it's an excellent place to raise children and work and if you're into the outdoors and, you know, our food is, is made for the outdoors, you couldn't ask for a better place. You've got Fiordland on your doorstep, you've got skiing in Queenstown two hours up the road, you've got the Catlins, um, yeah, Stewart Island, we, we are blessed with our access to the outdoors. Is there any question as we wrap up now that I haven't asked you or any particular topic that we should cover um, before we finish up this interview? Um, I think one of, the, one of the topics we talked about as we went around the factory, which we probably haven't covered, uh, touched on so much here, is some of the, um, the technology we use and, and why, you know, why our meals appear the way they do. I think, Ryan, you, you talked about it and you said, well, Tony, why, why have you cut your pieces of meat into little tiny rectangles and the same for the egg? Um, yeah, so ultimately in terms of our production, we, we do use a lot of technology in our production, freeze drying, um, the scientific process of sublimation. Um, it's a fantastic process. It enables us to take all of that water out of the meals, make them really light, but it locks in all the nutrition, um, keeps all the flavor in, and it also um, enables the food to stay in the shape it is. So we've got the trifecta there, if you like. Um, and what happens is um, it's all very well being able to make a freeze-dried product, but if you can't rehydrate it and make it taste nice when you eat it, nobody's going to like it, right? 
So um, a lot of what we do in terms of making the shape of the meat and the eggs and other bits and pieces is to come up with shapes that actually increase the surface area, make that surface area of the product as large as possible. And by doing that, when you add your boiling water back into the pack and give it your stir and sit it aside for 10 to 15 minutes, that enables um, the water to get back into the product and rehydrate it properly so that when you bite into the piece of meat, it's nice and rehydrated all the way through. There's nothing worse than having a, a piece of meat that's dry and chewy in the middle. Not such an issue for a piece of chocolate brownie, having a little dry bit in the middle is quite nice, but when it comes to meat and other things, it's, it's not the best dining experience. So we've done a lot of experimentation over the years and, and coming up with shapes that, um, although they don't look natural, actually enable the food to rehydrate properly so you have a nice, a really good dining experience in the backcountry. That makes sense because the, when you're when you're looking at a meal on a plate, you know you know what you're expecting because we eat with our eyes. Yes, and I think that's the the thinking part to get over is that it looks very different to how it tastes because it's made for that rehydration process. That's right. I know I've caught myself um, on in the back country and I see the ten to fifteen minutes and I think. I wonder if they really mean eight minutes. <laughs> and I, I worked out a way that you can you can you can kind of enjoy the first little bit at eight minutes, and by the time you get to the middle and then the end, it's ten to fifteen if you're really super. <laughs> yes, there is a trick. Um, what we tend to do with the with the recommendations on the pack is set the minimum. So ten minutes is is you know our recommendation for the minimum time you should let it rehydrate. Uh, Fifteen to twenty is even better. Um, and the same thing with the water. You know we'll give you the minimum amount because once you add too much, you can't take it back out but you can always add in a little bit more before you eat it. Or if you find a dry bit in the, you know, towards the bottom in the corner, you can rehydrate that later, yeah. Uh, John, I'll give you the last question. So we're at the start of 2021 now. By the end of 2021, what would you have liked to have seen happen with backcountry cuisine? Uh, I guess our main priority, because of the dem uh, strong demand we're getting, is looking at how we can increase more, get more capacity out of the current facility we're in. So we are have got plans to build a new factory, but that is going to take some time. Uh, we want to satisfy all the growth we've got now. So we're looking at different opportunities to once again keep increasing, um, popping the rivets in the current factory and looking, I think the real aim I'd like to see by the, in 2021 is to have a new dryer in the facility. That would um, make me very happy. I like that phrase, pop the rivets. I know when we went through, you're using every space. Yeah. There are a lot of people in that space having to work in concert with each other. Uh, and you're you know, keen on getting that utilization out, but also knowing that um, over time, there's investments that need to be made to get to that next level yeah. of production capacity. So then more of what you do, Tony, is uh, you know, knocking on the doors to get the next set of retail sites up yeah. and running. Yep. And we've also recently employed a new production manager um, who we're very happy, uh, he's just recently started, but he's a qualified engineer and a qualified nutrition bachelor and masters in nutrition. So we're looking to be able to utilize him to help with some meal, nutrition, etc., like that as well. So that's another, probably another aim for this year as well. Well, good luck on your journey. Appreciate both of your time today. Thank you very much for being on the Akiri Original Show. 
where we just talk with business owners and marketing and GM about uniquely Kiwi stories that are contributing to New Zealand's future. And certainly your product at the moment is contributing to New Zealand's fun when they get to go on annual leave, they can't get on a plane and are actually getting to see some of our own backyard. And I think that's an amazing thing that, that all Kiwis should do, um, particularly at this time. So thank you very much for what you're making. Yeah, thank, uh, you. thank you, Ron. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Ron. You're welcome. That's it for another episode of A Kiwi Original. Remember to subscribe on the podcast or on YouTube to receive the next episode. If you got value from this episode, please share it with someone you think could benefit. See you next time. One of the big things we had to write from this that was we're going to push that it's New Zealand made. New Zealand made carries a lot of weight outside New Zealand. People don't realize that. Well, you're by New Zealand and uh, we were really motivated by your professionalism at the outset when we first contacted you and that gave us the confidence to reach out to the rest of the New Zealand community to support this. We'll get two, three, four, five inquiries every day from people. And, and, and their only question is, are your product made in New Zealand? You know, they, they don't want to know anything else. We knew there was demand in the market for uh, a New Zealand-made product, firstly, a natural New Zealand-made product. We have got New Zealand made. That was the first thing I signed up to. I was really proud of that. And um, you were very welcoming. So thank you, Ryan. I think it's very, very important to sell in New Zealand as a New Zealand-made product. Originally, we were having to import components from overseas. It wasn't until we shifted to our carbon fiber model that we were able to say that the product was made in New Zealand. And that was a huge, it was sort of a big goal for me. I wanted to have complete control over the manufacturing of it. Definitely it's something that we've been belonged to right from the beginning and it just put trust, especially New Zealanders, into our product. We've noticed recently people have become so much more discerning about they will up front and say to you, is it really made here? And not have to rely on other countries and important components, especially in times like these, I'd, I'd, be, I'd have no stock. Being up to front up to that and show your logo and say, well, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand that you have to have a license to show that logo. We have also New Zealand made on some of the other brands selling over overseas. And it's something that people are looking for. The little triangle has been a part of our brand for a long time. Is that an investment or is it a cost? Yeah, can, we, can we spend it given what's going on? No, it's actually good value for us. Yeah, we, we are a Kiwi company. We are proud of Kiwis. It instantly had a, a fruitful conversation without any dancing around or holding back or everything came out. And that was that was part of the, how, why it was so invaluable. And so the best way to do that is to, to join the Binance and Make campaign, right? So I, as you will see on any of my social media, like, yeah, I put the Binance on a main logo. Well, I'm classed on everything I can pass it on. But just being able to prove to people that it is New Zealand made 
and that we've got a story. It's great, you know, pretty proud to be able to do that.